Imagine being told you are so sinful and corrupt that you're completely incapable of reformation. You're in such moral darkness that you can do nothing to improve your condition and you're a religious person. And, And that's what Jesus is saying to you this morning. That's what he's saying to me. Well, hey, you're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham. And today we are in John chapter 3 with a teaching called Jesus is the Son of Man. You may have been used to hearing Jesus as the Son of God, but today we're going to get a different view of who Christ is. Hope you enjoy it. God bless you. John chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. And I want to start our time together this morning uh, with what I would call a tale of two prayers, a tale of two prayers. There is a parable that Jesus told, and it comes to us from Luke chapter 18. I believe there's a typo uh, when we put the verse on the screen, Luke chapter 18, not 19. But often Jesus would teach in short stories to illustrate or communicate one truth, one idea. Uh, Now, much of the time, we don't know why Jesus tells us that parable or what the actual purpose of the parable is. But in Luke chapter 18, we actually are told by Luke why he tells us this story. And so look at with me as I read it on the screen. Verse 9, Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to, here it is, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. If you don't know the backstory, one is religious, one is not, all right? He says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, right? So he's, (laughs) what a great prayer, Uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The uh, New King James says that he prayed with himself. (laughs) That was a prayer to himself. But Jesus said the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then says this, I tell you, this man, the second, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One of these men understood that he had nothing to bring to impress God. He saw his need for mercy and he asked for it. The other saw no need for mercy, but was telling God all that he had done for him. Jesus says the first one didn't go home justified, but the second one did. The one who exalted himself not the one who humbled himself. And so as we open up John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, we're going to see two encounters that Jesus has with two locals. And these encounters uh, seem to mirror his parable of the two prayers there in Luke chapter 18. The first encounter that Jesus has is going to be with a man in chapter 3, and then the second is with a woman in John chapter 4. The man is an older, religious, wealthy, married man. The woman, well, she's, she's an outcast. She's sinful, rejected. She's a divorcee who's now living with her boyfriend. The man is someone that everyone in town looked up to. The woman is someone who everyone in town looked down at. Both of them are going to take Jesus' words too literally and miss the point of what he's trying to communicate. 
Both of these people were sincere in their longing to know truth and to hunger for spiritual understanding. Both of them, the man and the woman, longed to know who God was, but they both had two very different starting points. One needed to be saved from her sinful lifestyle uh, of rejecting God's commands. The other needed to be saved from his misunderstanding that he thought I could be saved by keeping God's commands. Uh, One thought, I'm religious and that's good enough. The other thought, I'm spiritual and that is good enough. But both of them, we're going to see, starting today, have the exact same need. They both need to be saved. We're going to meet the man today, and in a few weeks, we're going to meet the woman. And with both of them, we're going to see Jesus meeting them right where they're at. Uh, We're going to see Jesus speaking with them the profound truth that they need to hear. And we're going to see their lives being transformed, listen, not by self-righteous religion or by spirituality that's not religion, but by the person and work of Jesus Christ as he regenerates them into a new person. So if you're taking notes today, and I hope you are, here's our outline. We'll put it on the screen for you. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, the religious man, Nicodemus. We're going to see in verses 5 through 9 what a spiritual man looks like. And then in verses 10 through 13, we're going to see the son of man and why Jesus calls himself that. So with that as our outline, look back at verse 1, and let's look at the religious man. It says in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Can you with me today say Nicodemus? Nicodemus. Very good. Okay, so we have some backstory work to do here. Uh, We're in this first section, and I want us to learn five important things about the name you just gave me, Nicodemus. Okay, so if you're taking note, five things about Nicodemus that are important for us to note. The first is that he is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Okay, what is a Pharisee? Pastor Chuck Smith says this. He says, the Pharisees numbered about 6,000 men who had dedicated their entire life to keeping the codified law. They recognized that the first five chapters of the Old Testament were God's inspired word to man. Pastor Chuck goes on to say uh, that these men uh, were uh, basically relying on the scribes to interpret the first five books of the law, and those interpreted, um, that interpretation was called the Mishnah. So the law said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That was the law. But the Mishnah actually added 24 chapters to qualify what that meant, um, to remember the Sabbath. Here's 24 additional chapters to explain that. Well, then they went and they wrote the Talmud, which is a, a commentary on the Mishnah. So by the time you, you read through, you've got all of these extra um, kind of uh, additional ideas. And so if you're keeping track, the scribe's job was to interpret the law, and the Pharisee's job was then to implement it to the people. And so they were what you'd call theological hair splitters, and they devoted 64 columns in the Talmud to just the Sabbath requirements. And they wrote 24 chapters in the Mishnah defining how do you do work. So The first thing I want you to know is that that's who Nicodemus is. He's a Pharisee, uh, and that's important to note. Secondly, if you're taking note, um, Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, right? We learn that from John chapter 7. The Sanhedrin was a court of 70 men, if you're taking note, and these 70 men had religious jurisdiction over every Jew in the world, a very powerful group, and they were essentially the ones, remember, who handed Jesus over Uh, to be crucified by Rome. So Nicodemus is a part of that group. 
Uh, it says in verse 1, he is a ruler of the Jews. That tells us he's a Sanhedrin member. Third thing I want you to write down is that Nicodemus was a or the teacher of Israel. He's one of the main teachers of Israel. Verse 10, Jesus calls him that. He says, hey, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't know this? Now, this indicates he had a very preeminent status in the religious circles. He would have been an, an, an avid teacher of the people. That means he had to know, right, the Old Testament. Uh, our fourth point is important, if you're taking note. Uh, Nicodemus was wealthy. He was wealthy. Uh, when Jesus died, John tells us in chapter 19, Nicodemus, it says, he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes that weighed about 100 pounds. Okay? That's incredibly expensive. Thus, we can surmise that Nicodemus is loaded. Okay? He's rich. Jewish historians record that there was a very wealthy, prominent aristocratic family that had the name Nicodemus in their family uh, lineage. So we could surmise he's rich. He's a rich guy. Finally, the last thing I want you to know is that Nicodemus' name means literally people's victory. People's victory. Uh, listen, Nicodemus is the citizen par excellence that John is holding up to present as a case study of religious moralism. Uh, can you attain righteousness through the law? Well, let's select Judaism's poster boy and let's bring him to Jesus. And what would Jesus say to him? Here's a man, if you're keeping count, who's morally upright and proficient compared to almost anyone in all of Israel and certainly anyone outside of the people of God in every way. Now, you would expect someone who has dedicated their entire life to the law of God uh, and to pleasing God, these are kind of the back to the Bible guys, the Pharisees, you would expect that they would, of all people, be very happy about Jesus. Wouldn't you imagine that? They would be thankful for Jesus. He's on the scene. Not one word of the law will depart. Every jot and tittle. So yeah, okay, yeah, this guy, we like him. Well, you know, it's not like we're reading about a, a Muslim who's arguing with Jesus about the Quran. We would think that's an enemy of Jesus. But see, what's interesting is that as we dig into Scripture, we learn Jesus' biggest enemies were, listen, not the reprobate, but the religious and I want to clarify when I say religious, the self-righteous religious. I have to be careful with that. Self-righteous religious. Jesus was tougher on them than on anyone else he interacted with. Think about it. Jesus was constantly being accused of being associated with sinners, while those who were bringing the message of redemption and forgiveness, they looked at those sinners with indignance. And Jesus forgave sin in the sinners, and these self-righteous religious, they were just stuck on those theological issues instead of rejoicing with someone who uh, had been made whole. So today, just a show of hands, how many of you, if you've heard the word Pharisee, think of a positive connotation? You hear Pharisee and you know that word. How many of you raise your hand think negative when you hear Pharisee? All right. How many of you don't know how to spell Pharisee and you're glad you're here today? Okay, right. All right, so John chapter 2 ended with the idea that Jesus would not entrust himself to any man. Why? Because he knows what's in a man. He knows where we're at. And so Jesus is here in Jerusalem. After cleansing the temple, John the apostle says, one of those guys, one of the Pharisees, these religious Jewish men, is actually interested in Jesus. Look at verse two with me. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs unless God is with them. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Nick at night. <clears throat> ba -dum -bum. 
It's biblical, okay? Now, why did he come visit Jesus at night? Why did he come? A lot of people would say, well, uh, they would argue, well, Nicodemus, you know, he's ashamed of Jesus, and so he's sneaking around in the dark, okay? That's certainly possible. Uh, the next time we see Nicodemus is John 7, then the next time is John 19, and he is coming at night again. Uh, but we learn in the end, Nicodemus is a follower of Jesus. He aids Joseph of Arimathea, who also comes at night, in the very systematic and important process of wrapping and burying Jesus' body. Uh, I don't personally believe that Nicodemus is ashamed, uh, so he's trying to secretly rendezvous with Jesus under the cover of night. I don't personally believe that, uh, but it may be the case. Others see Nicodemus as a seeker who was in the dark, but now he's in the light. They would symbolically say, like, this represents Israel at night, and then they're brought into the light. I don't know about that. I think the simplest explanation is that um, it's Passover, so Jesus is teaching uh, and clearing the temple, and crowds are pressing around him, and Nicodemus is a teacher, and so he's teaching all day, and so this is the only advantageous time. Remember, there's no air conditioning back then, <laughs> and so this is springtime. The evenings are the enjoyable part of the day as the breeze comes in, the sun sets, and all of the homes in that region would have kind of a flat rooftop with a side stairway leading up to the roof. And often in the evening, the men would sit and they would congregate on each other's roofs and they talk about politics and about theological implications of the day. It's kind of like living in the South, you have those front porches. And, and every Sunday afternoon, you see uh, the men and the women rocking in the rocking chairs, drinking their sweet tea, talking about sports, right? And so um, kind of akin to that. Uh, and so I believe it's not necessarily that he's trying to hide out, but he genuinely wants to know who Jesus is. Notice what Nick at night says. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. Come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. I think the religious among us love to say Jesus is a good teacher. I like his teaching. I don't know about the man, but I like the teacher, Jesus. He says, oh, God must be with you because you're such a great rabbi. Well, those statements fall short of the truth. See, Nicodemus is missing the bigger picture. Jesus is not just a teacher who's come from God. Nicodemus is staring into the eyes of God himself. I love what C.S. Lewis says, one of my favorite quotes from him. Uh, he said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Nicodemus merely sees Jesus as a good teacher, but he's not yet bent his knee to worship Jesus as God. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe today you think I'm checking off my list of going to church. I'm being a good moral person. I'm gonna learn some ideas about morality and maybe some things about Jesus. I'm gonna live life from you know, Jesus's perspective. But you've never surrendered your life and your will to the Lord. See, Nicodemus may have religion, but self-righteous religious people all see something about Jesus that doesn't fit their presuppositional biases. In Nicodemus's case, he says, I know you're sent from God, and we're seeing you perform signs and miracles, and I'm stuck there. See, as a Pharisee, 
uh, and a ruler of the Sanhedrin. He has all the rules, but he's longing for more. He's longing for relationship. He says, I know no one can do these signs unless God's with them. He's longing for a relationship with God. I want God to be with me. But he's realized it's not found in keeping the law. It's not found in outward religious acts. There's something that must happen within us spiritually. He needs something else, something more, and he's about to learn exactly what it is. Look at verse three. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, most assuredly. I want you to circle that phrase. Another phrase is amen and amen, or verily, verily. You know, Jesus says that phrase 101 times in the New Testament. Uh, Listen, church, Jesus is trustworthy in what he says. Whenever he says verily, verily, amen, amen, most assuredly, you can take that to the bank. All right, amen? Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. Most assuredly, what is this trustworthy statement he's about to make? Well, he says, Nicodemus, do you want to see the kingdom? Listen, it's not about being a better person. It's about being a new person. You don't need to adjust the outward. You must be born again. Jesus says in verse four, or Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, that's hard. That's impossible. I understand physics and biology. That's not gonna happen. I'm a grown How can this happen? How? See, this is the spiritual principle Jesus is communicating. He's trying to use a human analogy like birth to communicate a spiritual idea, okay? Often Jesus did that. He'd take something natural to explain the spiritual. And a lot of times people, they didn't get it. Nicodemus here doesn't get it. Uh, He's picturing a natural birth. He's going, oh, that's gonna be weird. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 we're talking about a spiritual rebirth. (laughs) He has in his mind uh, a grown man becoming a baby and being born via natural processes and he's incredulous. How? How can that happen? How can a grown man do that? But at this point, Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not about natural birth. It's about spiritual birth, spiritual rebirth. Even though you may be religious, Nicodemus, you don't need more rules. You need new birth. I really think that this morning there may be someone here that believes that, like Nicodemus, I'm a good, moral, upright citizen. Uh, God will look at my theology or my obedience or my family history, my outward compliance, and then he's got to be like happy about that. He's got to grade on a curve. And at some point, he's got to weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds and say, I'm not that bad of a person deserving of eternal life. You may be tempted to think, well, because you have Bible knowledge uh, that you're a Christ follower. But it's not about facts that you can tell me about Jesus or facts about the Bible that saves. Spurgeon said this powerful statement, no one is more orthodox than the devil yet no one is more surely lost than he is. You may get a clear head, but if you have not a clear heart, it will not avail you at the last. Church, you must be born again. That brings us to our second section, the spiritual man. Look at verse five, the spiritual man. Jesus answered and again said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot Enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Look at verse seven. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And he uses another analogy. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Okay? Nicodemus is again stuck. Verse nine, 
he answered and said to him, how can these things be? Still doesn't get it. Now, if you're taking note today, we have to move a little faster, but uh, to be born again uh, means to be, uh, to be born from above, to be born of the Spirit. You're born from below, and then you can be born from above. So all of us are born once, and then we die, but if we're not born again, we die twice. So you can choose to be born once, die twice, or you can be born twice and die once. If I confused you, I'm sorry about that. Uh, but David Gusick says this, essentially, this means to have new life. A theological term for this is regeneration. It isn't simply a moral or religious reform, but the bringing of new life, okay? I want you to jot some verses down. We're going to move quick through these. I'm just going to highlight them since we're pressed for time. Uh, 1 Peter 1.3, jot that down. Uh, he says there in verse 3 that God has caused us to be born again. 1 Peter 1.3, born again. And later in that same chapter, 1 Peter 1, 22, 23, Peter again says in verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You've been born again. It wasn't merely Peter who understood this, but Paul the apostle encouraged Titus to remember who we are. Titus 3, 5, uh, he says that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, here it is, of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, being renewed, being made new, regenerated. Uh, Paul even told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.17, what an awesome verse for those of you who are new believers to know this. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, say it with me, new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Uh, the churches in the region of Galatia, they definitely needed to understand this. They thought it was all about circumcision and keeping the law. So Paul had to correct their thinking. And he says in Galatians 6, 14, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but here's what counts, a new creation. They needed to hear that idea. With Nicodemus, and as we'll see in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, Jesus uses physical analogies to unpack a spiritual truth, but the person that he's speaking to doesn't get it. Here's what Jesus wants to communicate, church, if you want to take a picture of this on the screen. Here's what Jesus' idea is. Salvation is according to God's will. It's invisible, and it's unpredictable. Okay? Now, to illustrate that point, that's what Jesus is trying to say. He uses the wind as an analogy, okay? I want us to think about the wind for a moment. Uh, we live on the southwest portion of Florida, and we do have a very lovely Gulf breeze that kind of blows in off the Gulf of Mexico. If you've lived in any other part of Florida, you know that we don't really, they don't have the Gulf breeze. Jen and I, my wife, went to Miami a few years ago, and uh, we, were, we were like, all right, let's we, we saw the sign, welcome to Miami. It should have said, welcome to the surface of the sun, all right? <laughs> we went there in mid-July, because that was smart. And uh, we were like, wow, these Airbnbs are cheap. Now, if you want to stay, they're like, Expedia, half price. That's why, because you go there and you, you actually melt, all right? And so uh, there's no sea breeze coming off the Atlantic at all, all right? So here in Florida, on the southwest coast at least, we have a little bit of a breeze. And so if you think about the, the breeze, the wind blows wherever it wishes. It's not a power that we can control. As humans, we can benefit from its power, right, by, by harnessing wind energy, but we can't direct the wind. Oh, sure, there's people that say, you know, 
yeah, the president's directing the latest hurricane. I've got, you got people that say that, right? But listen, you can't control it. You can't see the wind. You can see the effects of the wind. You can see the palm trees kind of blowing. Uh, but it's unpredictable, right? I want to use the analogy of something we all experienced last year, Hurricane Irma, hashtag Irma gosh, all right? You guys remember this. There's an actual satellite photo that someone took. Here's the more accurate photo. This next one is a more accurate photo. We are here. Our car is here. Our dog is here. Our house is there, okay? Um, I think we have another picture, Irma's projected path. Now, all of us were thinking it's going to come to this side, and now it's going to come to this side, and we're watching it, and we're terrified, and we're going to hunker down, or we're going to stay at a shelter, or we're going to flee to Valdosta, right? We didn't have a lot of great options. It was either die or flee, right? So not a lot of great options here. So uh, we all kind of went through that, and, uh, and uh, one thing that we learned, <laughs> we're open until the letters fly out this time, right? One of the things that we all learned from Hurricane Irma uh, for next time is that uh, if, if you're going to, this is the valuable lesson, always stock up on Oreos before the hurricane makes landfall, right? So, so that's the idea, when Jesus is saying this, we'll put it on the screen again, salvation is according to God's will, it's invisible, it's unpredictable, okay? And he's talking about that, but he says the when. Think about it, guys. Salvation is happening even when we don't see the outward evidences of it in someone's life. It's not a matter of our human effort. It's a work of God's sovereign grace in someone's life. Even this morning, some of you I know are discouraged because you've been praying for that family member, that friend. You've invited them to harvest tonight and they've declined. You've been praying, Lord, would you work in this person's heart? I don't see the fruit that I'm praying for and I'm evangelizing. But I want to encourage you, God may still be and probably is still at work, even if we don't see fruit. I want to encourage you to keep praying, keep believing keep sharing. Uh, Jesus says we must be born of water physically and born of the Spirit spiritually to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Nicodemus is shaking his head, and so Jesus says, don't marvel, verse 7. Don't marvel at this. There's probably two reasons that Nicodemus was marveling. Uh, the first is that he needed to realize the complete inability in our human nature uh, to remedy our sinful fallen condition. Raise your hand this morning if you birthed yourself. Is there anyone here who birthed themselves? Invariably, someone will raise their hand, not really paying attention. Okay, no one in here birthed themselves. Okay, the imperative of verse seven, you must be born again, is like saying, hey, you need to pick yourself up from the airport. Anyone here do that? You gotta pick yourself up from the airport, right? It doesn't make sense unless Jesus is also offering to be the one who establishes the new birth. Spurgeon said, again, I love Spurgeon quotes, he said, a man may cast away many vices, forsake many lusts in which he indulged, conquer evil habits, but no man in the world can make himself to be born of God. Though he should struggle never so much, he could never accomplish what is beyond his power, he must be born again. So it's, with, it's a beyond his power. Secondly, though, he's probably marveling. Why? Because birth is a genesis, meaning everything that came before is kind of over. It's wiped clean. This high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin is realizing, I've got to start over in life. Everything that I thought was to my credit is now loss. There was another Pharisee that said that in a different portion of Scripture. Uh, I, I now have to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. New birth means a new start. How am I going to do that? And so he says, how can these things be? He doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. The people's victor was just told, you've lost 
The one who was the teacher of Israel was just taught his most important lesson, the need for salvation. Imagine being told you are so sinful and corrupt that you're completely incapable of reformation. You're in such moral darkness that you can do nothing to improve your condition and you're a religious person. And, And that's what Jesus is saying to you this morning. That's what he's saying to me. I don't care what your family background is, how many people have known God, what your Catholic roots are, what your Protestant roots are. You must be born again. And Nicodemus did not get it. And he said, how can these things be? Look at Jesus' response in verse 10. We look at our third and final section of this text. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? In other words, you should know better. Here it is again, verse 11. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and yet you do not receive our witness. Some of you notice that here Jesus shifts the conversation from you and I to we. Uh, I believe that he's speaking about himself, John the Baptist, the line of Old Testament prophets who've gone before, and ultimately the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All through the scriptures, God has been speaking about the need for man to allow and receive the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But men don't want to receive the witness of the Trinity. They willfully reject the gospel. Why? Because their foolish hearts are darkened and because they love darkness rather than light. Not everyone wants to change and be made new. Maybe even this morning you're here and you don't want to be reborn. Well, notice what Jesus says uh, to him. He says in verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I've used these earthly analogies. You still aren't getting it. And then he says this, verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Now, in other words, he's saying, I'm trying to make this clear in human terms, right? I'm using these simple analogies. You're not getting it. I'm the only one who's qualified to discuss heavenly things, right? Uh, Because I've been there. I get it. This week, I asked uh, friends on Facebook, like, what is the one city that you have never been to outside of the U.S., but you'd like to visit? I got a lot of answers. Barcelona, uh, Rome. Some people um, put, um, I said not in the U.S., but they put, they put uh, cities in Hawaii. Um, someone put Parrish, Florida. <laughs> That's where I want to visit, Parrish. And they live there. Um, and someone said Vienna. Now, imagine, I think there's a picture. Imagine that I told you, oh, you've got to go to Vienna. I mean, it's beautiful. The cute side streets, the, the bakers are there, the cleanliness of the city. I mean, uh, you'll see churches carved by the patristics, uh, preserved for generations. This place is amazing. You go, really? You've been there? I go, no, I've never been. I haven't even been to the Wikipedia page. I don't know anything about Vienna. You'd say, okay, great. Thanks, Pastor. Versus someone who said, I just got back. You gotta go, and they give you specifics. I would much rather listen to someone's testimony who have been there. And in the same way, a much more important scale, Jesus says no one has the authority to tell you about the redemptive plan of God except those who have seen God. And in, in this case, the Son of Man alone has that authority. And so here in verse 13, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. I want you to circle that phrase. Uh, if you've got a handout Bible, that's fine. If you've got an app, highlight it. The Son of Man. Now, we know Jesus as the Son of God, but here he says Son of Man. Very important title. 
He uses this title 81 times in the Gospels, always exclusively describing Jesus. Okay? This is, even though it sounds counterintuitive, this is the most important um, title that represents his claim to divinity uh, as uh, divine. And when Jesus is referred to as Son of God, that's a throwback to Psalm chapter 2, where God says, this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased. We hear that at the baptism, the Son of God. But when you're Son of Man, there's something more going on here. On the screen, we hear about the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel. Book of Daniel, chapter 7, says, I watched in the night visions. I saw one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient One, the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, to him, this son of man was given dominion, glory, kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Okay? Not only is the son of man found in Daniel, but God refers to Ezekiel 93 times as the son of man. Ezekiel was that faithful servant. Remember, Ezekiel saw the dead bones coming to life in chapter 37. And so when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, he's saying, I am the faithful servant and I am the one who is divine. I'm coming on the clouds with heaven. In fact, Matthew Henry in his commentary says, Christ in calling himself the son of man shows that he is the second Adam. For the first Adam was the father of man. And of all the Old Testament titles of the Messiah, he chose to make use of this because it was the most expressive of his humility and most agreeable to his present state of humiliation. That Jesus is mighty to save. He's the one who's coming on the clouds of heaven. And no king, no earthly king, would be sufficient to fulfill uh, the purpose of atonement. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. Uh, Napoleon wouldn't do it. Stalin, Xerxes, FDR, Trump. There's no president, no politician, no king that could ever meet the redemptive need to come on the clouds of heaven to be a humble servant and yet to be a conquering king. And that's the son of man. That's Jesus. And so God without incarnation is terrifying. Yet Christ incarnate is our salvation, the son of man. And I think, you know, when we consider that this morning, we consider who we are in light of who he is. I think of the story that kind of makes sense. I heard this story and I thought this makes sense thinking about how glorious and grand he is, and then why are you including me? I'm not worthy to be here. I'm, I'm unworthy. Uh, their story says that there was a briar growing in a ditch. This is actually not a true story, but uh, fiction. And this briar saw the gardener coming along with his spade, and so the, the gardener began to dig around and lift the briar out of the ground. And the briar said, what is he doing? Uh, doesn't he know I'm just a worthless briar? And so the gardener took it into his garden, planted it amidst his flowers, and the briar said, this is a mistake. You can't plant me among these beautiful roses. And the gardener came once more and made a cut in the briar with his knife and began to graft into the briar a rose. And when the summer came, the story says these lovely roses were blooming out of that old briar. And the gardener said this to him, and I love this phrase on the screen, said, your beauty is not due to what came out, but to what I put in. You see, church, there's only two responses that you and I and Nicodemus can have when we realize what, what Jesus has said. It's either total surrender or total rejection. You and I this morning are faced with the same options. Either we take Jesus 
who is put to death on our behalf and then receive his redemptive plan and become new creations, or we completely reject it and thus say, I can pick myself up from the airport, knowing deep down that we're rejecting the only hope of salvation. And so this morning, I leave you only those two possibilities, total surrender or total rejection. You either can receive Christ today as Lord and Savior, or you can reject Christ to your own damnation. As we close this morning, I want to invite the band forward, and I want us to close our Bibles and just get settled for a minute. And I want to do two things this morning. I want to share two testimonies and one challenge. All right, you guys cool with that? Two testimonies and one challenge. First testimony was written by Chuck Swindoll. I'm just going to read it to you. Chuck Swindoll says this, in the year 1505, a young man named Martin, returning home, found himself caught in a violent storm. Terrified, he vowed to become a monk if he were allowed to live. Martin Luther made it through the storm and fulfilled his vow. He entered the Augustinian order of monks in Germany, and by his own admission, he entered the monastery more out of constraint than commitment. In Wittenberg, he obsessively performed his religious tasks. His hard work, confessions, and penances never seemed enough. He wrestled with his own salvation. He hungered for acceptance by God and realized his emptiness. On a trip to Rome, which he thought would earn him some form of spiritual merit, he climbed the steps of Pilate's house on his knees. This is where many church historians believe Luther first gained a true understanding of the gospel. A verse came to mind that changed his life, Romans 1.17, the righteous man shall live by faith. Like another flash of lightning, this time it struck him. It is faith that justifies, not works. He said, I felt myself to have been born again, to have entered through open gates into paradise itself. Swindoll goes on to say, Luther had lived a rigorous religious life, pounding on heaven's door in the strength of his own works, and exhausted, he fell on his knees before that door and realized a liberating truth. Christ himself is the door, and it opens to no human effort. Rather, the door swings on the well-oiled hinges of Christ's righteousness, and it opens by faith. Isn't that awesome? I want to share with you a second testimony. There's a teen boy who was raised in the church in a Christian home. He'd been taught the Bible and prayer and said, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. He knew the Sunday school answer to every question is Jesus. But this boy in his teen years began running from God. He was given a full academic scholarship. He began to run away from Christ and towards the world. Within a few months, his life was filled with despair and empty of meaning. He happened to see his family on a random encounter, these Christians around him, and in them he saw life, he saw hope, and he saw profound fullness. And he decided, my life is futile, it's empty. I'm going to stop resisting the love and mercy of God. I'm going to stop trying to do things in my own strength, and I'm going to surrender. So he gave up his scholarship, he gave up his life, moved to Florida and surrendered his life to Christ. Within a few years, he was in ministry, then married, then Bible college, then planting churches. His name's Pilgrim Benham. My life was completely changed, not because I tried harder to do better, 
to be a good person, to floss, and to eat free-range farm-raised food. That's not what changed my life. Still eat donuts. It's not what changed my life. I was changed from the inside out because I was born again by the Spirit of God. I was changed. I was renewed because of Jesus. Not by being better, but by being born again. Here's my pastor's challenge for us this morning. Are you born again? I didn't ask you this morning if you're a good person, religious person. I didn't ask how often do you attend church? Are you born again? If you're here this morning, say, I'm saved. Then I would ask you to consider how you've been saved. Is it through your works or is it through God's redemptive grace? Have you remade yourself or has God caused you to be born again? Can't pick yourself up from the airport. You must be born again. Have you received Christ? If you bow your heads with me, I want to give you that opportunity today to receive Jesus. And one more time, I'll quote a Spurgeon quote with your eyes closed, your heads bowed. Spurgeon said, there are flames of hell. Would you escape them? You must be born again. There are heaven's glories sparkling in their own light. Would you enjoy them? You must be born again. This is the one condition that never moves. God never alters it. You must, must, must. What shall it be? Bow yourselves down and say, Lord, I must, then I will. And it has come to this, I must today. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus.